Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Lawrence Baskin from the University of California, San Francisco, talking about pediatric urologic emergencies. Uh, my name is Yi. I'm one of the UCSF residents moderating the session, and this morning, uh, it is my honor and uh, pleasure to introduce our speaker, Dr. Lawrence Baskin, uh, who will be talking about pediatric urology emergencies. Thanks, Yi. Good morning, everybody. I hope uh, we're all sheltering in okay and everybody's staying safe. Well, this is San Francisco on a better day when we can go outside. Uh, we can see our hospital way in the background as well as downtown. Hopefully in the future, we'll all be out there doing the things that we like, as well as doing surgery and helping our patients uh, in different ways now other than just the urgent cases. Today, I'd like to do a case space uh, learning exercise where we're gonna do some Zoom polling uh, to test your acumen, and we're gonna focus on pediatric urologic emergencies where we'll have you guess the diagnosis. I don't have any particular disclosures other than these are gonna be varsity cases. My expectation is that you've read core curriculum and can handle things like paraphimosis and phimosis, so I'd like to jump it up a little bit and start with some more advanced emergencies that I've seen in my career as a pediatric urologist and that you'll see many of these as you go through your training and your career. So let's start with a practice question. This is a septic six week old who has the below anatomy. And everybody can see the picture and I'm sure everybody's familiar with a ureter seal and a duplex system. An operation is done, which you can see here, and I will give you the hint, which I think you already know, that this is an endoscopic procedure. Done with a small scope, and based on the history, I would say that this was done relatively urgently. So it's your job to guess the diagnosis and to determine whether this is a pediatric urologic emergency. Michelle, can you put up the poll, please? So for each case, I'd like you to guess and or determine the diagnosis. Guessing is okay. There's one correct answer and also determine whether this is a true pediatric urologic emergency. If my memory's correct, I think you have about 30 seconds to get your answer in and then we'll go ahead and see how we did.
I think everybody slash the majority got the idea that this is an emergency. In other words, obstructive uropathy with infection, corollaries would be a stone with pus behind it. In this case, you have a block ureterocele in a septic child. And the answer is you want to drain it. A little more confusion on whether it's ectopic or orthotopic. I agree from the video, it's hard to actually make that determination, but we know just historically based on numbers that duplex systems are about 80% of ureterocils, and of those, the majority are ectopic. So without even looking at the video, there should be a higher rate of ectopic ureterocil. Everybody got the idea that this is infected, so I think the key points were taken away and really not important to quibble about ectopic versus orthotopic without better imaging. Okay, let's get ready to take the quiz of the real questions. Here's case number one. This is a newborn with, in quotes, severe hypospadias. Michelle, can we have the poll, please? What is your diagnosis? Severe hypospadias, 5-alpha reductase type 2 deficiency, partial antigen insensitivity, or CAH, and is this a true pediatric urologic emergency? A few more seconds, and Michelle, can you bring up our polling results? All right, good work. The majority of you pick congenital adrenal hyperplasia. The only way to really know this is by a true physical exam, and your findings would be non-palpable testes. So severe hypospadias, where the gonads aren't palpable, CAH needs to be ruled out. Is this an emergency? Definitely. Patients with congenital adrenal hyperplasia, about half of them are salt losing and have life-threatening electrolyte abnormalities due to <coughs> sodium and potassium imbalance. How do you make this diagnosis? Well, <coughs> most importantly, you have to think about it. So if you're concerned about congenital adrenal hyperplasia in a patient with severe hypospadias and non-palpable gonads, if you simply get an ultrasound, you should be able to see the malarian structures with how accurate ultrasound is now, i.e. you would see a normal uterus. Electrolytes are indicated as well as a karyotype. The electrolytes obviously will come back immediately and you'll know if there's any imbalances. The karyotype will take a few days, but that will confirm your diagnosis with an XX uh, result for these patients. I think everybody's familiar with the steroid biosynthesis pathways. I always have to look this up in the textbook when I'm seeing these patients. But based on the font size, and I think we're all familiar, 21-hydroxylase deficiency is absolutely the way most common form of congenital renal hyperplasia. And in that case, you have a buildup of 17-OH. 11-beta-hydroxylase, much less common associated with hypertension. There you'd have a buildup of 11-deoxycortisol. 
and the most rare form of congenital renal hyperplasia, 3-beta HSD, your buildup would be 17-hydroxypredagnolone. And you can see based on the chart where you have each of these precursors and you have your block in your specific enzyme. Is this an emergency? Back in the day when we really didn't appreciate it and we didn't have uh, the appropriate testing, ultimately we would keep these patients in the hospital for a month to declare themselves. Now we can make the diagnosis and send them home with appropriate steroid treatment so they don't die of what is a very serious electrolyte imbalance. Okay, here's case number two. Uh, this is a newborn, and I'm gonna give you a hint that on the left, it's one sex, and on the right, it's another sex. Michelle, if we can pull up the poll, I'd like the diagnosis and whether this is a pediatric urologic emergency. Few more seconds and then we'll see our results. Michelle, if you can pull up the answers. All right, the majority chose colloquial extrophy and the majority felt it was an emergency. Not a bad answer. If you chose emphalocil, you're correct, but the better answer is colloquial extrophy. This is a male on the left and a female on the right. And colloquial extrophy is defined as not just a herniation of the bladder, but a, as well as a herniation of the hindgut. So let's take a look at the female first. Well, what's our anatomy? I agree, very confusing. Here's a bladder half, here's a bladder half. This is the protruding hindgut. This is the omphalocil back here. In the male, you can see a bladder half here and here in the protruding hindgut. This is a hemiphallus and the other hemiphallus, so there's clear abnormal genital abnormalities. In the female, this is the prolapsed vagina, with again, your bladder halves here and there. Most of these patients, not all, but most of these patients, the meconium, i.e. stool, will be able to come out normally, and the urinary tract is gonna drain without obstruction. So is this a true emergency? The answer is it's an emergency for the parents, but in respect to surgical reconstruction, in this present day, this can often be delayed until your team is ready. And there's now a number of scenarios where we're waiting until six weeks to two months where the baby's much more healthy. Your team's ready to go and you can do the reconstruction at 0730 as opposed to the middle of the night. So cloacal extrophy, incredibly complex. Historically, reconstruction was done where these patients were raised as females, now that would be, I would say, not optimal. The testicles are here. There is issues with a hemiphallus that can be reconstructed with our much better experience with a transgender uh, patients. So the goal is to basically get the bladder in, get the hindgut out as an ostomy, get the genitalia together, and get the cloacal extrophy repaired.
Okay, here's a corollary, which is case number three. This is a newborn. And if you look on the left, this is kind of the normal right side up anatomy um, where you're looking at the perineum, abdomen's up here, legs on the outside. If you flip the baby over upside down, uh, you can also see the anatomy. I'm gonna give you a hint, which I think you already know. There's only one hole here. So there's no anus or vagina that's visible. Michelle, can we bring up the pole? Okay, so we need the diagnosis, and we also need to know, is this a pediatric urologic emergency? One thing about this patient, which would be very different than case number two with colloidal extrophy, is we can always get the sex correct just on physical examination. What do I mean by that? These are all females with cloaca anomalies. In other words, if you do the karyotype, it's gonna be XX. I would contrast that to a cloacal extrophy where you can kind of tell, especially if you can fill testes, but in cloacal extrophy, I think it's critical to get a karyotype just to make sure there's not an interabdominal testes or you're not missing something. Here, we're always gonna have female internal ovary, vagina, cervix, uterus. No question that the uterus can be abnormal and that you can have uterus didalphus. So all of the above was the correct answer. Is this a pediatric urologic emergency? And this is split about two thirds, one third. And I think the answer is, it depends on whether the stool's able to come out. If this is a high confluence and with the imperfect anus, you can't, the stool can't come out and the baby has distended abdomen, then you're going to need to do an emergency colostomy. Okay. So this is a 3D reconstruction. The colostomy's already been done. This baby's about three to four months old, and we're getting ready for reconstruction. If you look carefully, there's a little radiologic bead, which you can see on my pointer. That bead was placed on the patient's perineum where the one hole was. Ureteral catheters or stents were used to place in all the different uh, structures. In this case, you can see it wrapped in the bladder. It's also in the vagina. It's also in the hindgut. And this allows you to kind of define the anatomy or the confluence. In other words, how long is this common channel? Kind of three centimeters is the key number here. If it's less than three centimeters, you're centimeters, it's typically an easier operation to pull everything out. If it's greater than three centimeters, then you're going to have issues in the sense of separating the vagina and the hindgut and getting that one hole into three holes. So going over this more carefully, we can see the bladder here and here. If we look on the back, we've got basically two vaginas. There'd be a cervix here and a cervix here in the uterus. You can see it on the side where the vagina is entering at a high confluence, reasonably close to the bladder neck, but not right at the bladder neck. And then if we look even more carefully, you can see the hindgut tailoring down to a very thin structure entering the back of the vagina. Lots of variation of cloacal anomalies. They are pediatric urologic emergencies. 
here's the same patient <clears throat> after uh, the reconstruction and we're ready for surgery where everything's being separated. This is the baby upside down. So you've got the common channel, which is ultimately gonna be the urethra. The vagina has been separated off in the rectum. If we flip the baby over at the end of the operation, the new anus, the new vagina, new urethra, clitoris was normal. These were cloacal anomalies, one hole as opposed to two holes, urogenital sinus anomalies, as we have in congenital adrenal hyperplasia, where we have one hole for the vagina and the urethra, with the rectum typically being normal. So again, a true pediatric urologic emergency, typically requiring a colostomy and further reconstruction. I would contrast a cloacal anomaly compared to cloacal extrophy, uh, which are quite different anatomical and reconstructive diagnoses. Okay, case number four, something we're all familiar with. Painless, hard, unilateral testicular mass in a well newborn. Michelle, will we have the poll? Hi, Michelle. There we go. Oops, we seem to have lost it. Let's pop that up again. Great. All right, so we have five choices for the diagnosis. And I think the diagnosis is relatively straightforward, but then it's the question, is this a pediatric urologic emergency? All right, let's bring up the poll when uh, we're finished. So I'm guessing most of you thought this was neonatal torsion, so painless, hard mass. Yeah, good job. Um, and is it a pediatric urologic emergency? And that's where I think there's a little bit of controversy. I'm pleased to see that 60% said no. I kind of feel that it's not really an emergency, and let me kind of explain that. So we know the salvage rate for neonatal torsion is less than 1%. Um, we do know that the other testes is at risk, at least in the first maybe three to six months of life for uh, asynchronous torsion, which is obviously catastrophic if both testes were to twist. But after six months, this is rare. So if this is diagnosed at birth, my focus is really on the health of the other testes. So I typically wait at least 24 to 48 hours, again, if it's painless, um, because of the increased anesthetic risks in the first 24 to 48 hours. And then I would do a contralateral scrotal orchidopexy for the rare chance that the other side could twist. But since the stakes are high and it's kind of become a medical legal issue, I think that's a reasonable way to deal with this. I do a scrotal approach. Back in the day, I did an inguinal approach. Uh, this is based on the work from uh, Martin Kafer at Indiana showing that in spite of hydrocele slash risk of hernia, these did not seem to be an issue, and therefore it was safe to do the other testes in a contralateral fashion. Could there be a tumor? I've seen one in my career that's super rare. If you decide to wait uh, like I do for a few days, I usually do remove the abnormal testes. That's not going to make a difference really in tumor outcome although removing a tumor scrotally is not classically ideal.
All right, let's go on to case number five. This is a baby that had what I would call uh, not a normal neonatal circumcision. If we can pull up the poll, please. All right, so what is a diagnosis and is this an emergency? All right, circumcision issues can definitely be <clears throat> acute problems and, and real pediatric urologic emergencies. For example, bleeding, which we've all been called for, typically pressure on the rare occasion that uh, you'll need to put the baby back in a posy, for example, and put some stitches in because of frenular bleeding, and in even a rare situation uh, where you need to take the baby back to the OR, hopefully really unusual. Michelle, we can pull up the answers uh, when you have a chance. Also, on the rare occasion, you can mask uh, a patient who has a bleeding disorder at the time of neonatal circumcision. That becomes an issue, and obviously your hematologists are gonna be helpful there. I would say probably 98% of the time, it's simply technical issues and frenular bleeding. This case, where there was acute skin loss, and um, what happened here is that this patient had a neonatal circumcision with a GOMCO clamp, and the classic uh, problem with, I think, most neonatal circumcisions is failure to really to break up the physiologic adhesions and to allow that foreskin uh, to come down and then to get your clamp device on properly. In this case, the skin was pulled up into the clamp and the penile shaft skin was circumcised. Well, that can present obviously a problem. We didn't have the skin. I've seen this a couple times now and in, in the times that I've seen it, I've simply just used Vaseline and allow secondary skin to kind of heal in. It's not a perfect cosmetic outcome, but I think a skin graft in a baby who's eight days old or one day old is kind of a tour de force. Uh, if you do have the skin and it's saved, it can theoretically be put back on. But again, that's an operation in a newborn. So I think there's some controversy here and the results have been acceptable. And when you go back, if there's some scarring, you still have all the foreskin that can be pulled down and used as shaft skin, although it's shiny and not ideal. So I think prevention here is obviously better than the complication. Uh, but since circumcisions are so ubiquitous, we need to be able to kind of handle uh, and deal with all these. I would contrast that to amputation of the glands or the penis itself, uh, where in that case, obviously a true uh, pediatric urologic emergency, and those patients um, would need to go, hopefully, if you have the body part, right back to the OR with um, microvascular anastomosis with our plastic surgery colleagues, with actually decent outcomes. Chronic issues from the circumcision that we deal with, I'll mention uh, fistula, typically from crush injuries from a GOMCO clamp <clears throat> or ischemia. And also, I think what we see most commonly, either take too little skin off or too much skin off, or you take skin off in an asymmetric fashion, and that requires future reconstruction. 
Okay, case number six. This is a newborn who has respiratory distress. Um, you have a KUB right before the baby was intubated. And then you also have an ultrasound of uh, the abdomen. I think the, the big hint here, if we can put up the pole, Michelle, um, is this ultrasound up here. So what is your diagnosis and is this a pediatric urologic emergency? All right, a few more seconds. Michelle, if we can put up the results when they come in. So this patient has a massive left UPJ obstruction uh, causing respiratory distress because of uh, pressure on the diaphragm and essentially small lung volume. From an epidemiologic perspective, if you said posterior urethral valves, you wouldn't be wrong. That would be what I think would be the leading cause of that massive uh, abdominal distension pushing up on the lungs and what you saw in the KUB. For the last few years, we've really had um, uh, the pleasure of working closely with our radiology department, and this has become, I think, uh, pretty close to standard of care to get swaddle MRIs. I wasn't really a true believer, uh, but there are such beautiful studies. Uh, the baby doesn't require an IV, and um, obviously they, they, they need to be healthy. But if you pop them into the machine um, after they breastfed, it just takes 10 minutes and we can get incredible anatomy. So no question here that we have a massive or giant hydronephrosis on the left side. We can see a normal right kidney. If the baby's well, breathing, uh, no respiratory issues, this is certainly not an emergency. Uh, but in this case, with respiratory issues, I called it semi-urgent. Treatment options, I think performing a primary pyeloplasty for giant hydronephrosis in a newborn is a bit of a tour de force. So my approach would be to do a pylostomy. Um, this is the baby, uh, I think nine months to a year later, obviously a lot bigger, um, pretty easy to take care of. I'm just using the diaper sideways. You can see the pylostomy here. Uh, a MAG3 study shows that there's actually was excellent function in this kidney. And this would be uh, one of the few babies that we would get to do an open uh, pyloplasty on after the pylostomy decompressed the system. So this is a nice example of the use of swaddle MRI, uh, the use of urinary diversion uh, in respect to a pylostomy uh, for massive UPJ causing respiratory issues. All right, here's case number seven. This is a six-week-old with sepsis, and the information you're getting here uh, is an ultrasound. I'm gonna point to what I think is kind of an important finding here. If we can put up the pole, Michelle. Um, this is the baby's bladder here, and you can see the kidney here. And as a standard, uh, this would be uh, the thorax up here. Uh, this would be the feet down here. So kind of standard ultrasound of the kidney. So what's the diagnosis? And is this a pediatric urologic emergency? I want to shout out to uh, Dominique Escobar, one of our residents who just did a spectacular 
talk on this. Um, and this is, I think, super interesting. And, and I'm going to vote for a pediatric urologic emergency. At least semi-urgent. If we can pull up the poll. Okay, primary dilated mega ureter. I'm going to vote for debris. So I'm in the three percentile here. Um, a primary dilated mega ureter to me is um, typically in a single system and the ultrasound showed a pretty classic duplex system. It's also non-refluxing. This is probably non-refluxing. Um, but in this case, what we have here is a septic kid and what I was showing you on the ultrasound, which I think I can go back. was basically debris in this ureter. This is kind of debris here. And the theme of this, which we'll have uh, uh, in, in another case today, um, and we had in our ectopic uh, ureter cell that was infected, is uh, basically sick kids and ultrasound show some debris and how accurate is this actual debris. But I think if the baby's sick, you can see some layer in here, you have to be a little more aggressive with this is obstructive uropathy, knees drainage, pediatric urologic problem. Uh, this is the same patient uh, later on after drainage, and you can see on the scan, uh, left kidney, uh, I'm sorry, um, you can see the upper pole here of the right, uh, of the left kidney, as well as the right kidney, and you can see that there's good function here, but this baby was sick, and so I think drainage is indicated. Nephrostomy tube, possible. I never like them in babies because then when you take them out, they get infected, they fall out, they get yanked out. So I, I prefer another type of temporary urinary diversion in babies, not typically in older kids. So in this case, uh, we're going to do a ureterostomy and ureterostomy on the right side. This is the wire migart law of the crossing ureters in a duplex system. And you can see the ureter is coming underneath the lower pole ureter, which is normal, upper pole ureter is dilated. And we bring it out to the skin and you can see the turbid urine or pus that came out. So this really allows two things to happen. One, it drains the obstructive neuropathy and takes care of the infection. And two, it sets yourself up for success. Nine months to a year later, you now have a decompressed ureter that's nice and thin. Uh, this ureter can then be re-implanted into the lower ureter as a UU or into the bladder through the same small incision, uh, and then you get closure for the patient. The other option in a patient who isn't sick would be a partial nephrectomy, but that's reserved for patients who have minimal to no upper pole function, in my opinion. In this case, the scan showed good function, so we'd prefer reconstruction. So the theme here is a septic child, debris on ultrasound. Ultrasound's about 50% accurate in determining that it's actually pus. I think the accuracy goes up if the patient has a, uh, a high fever or, or is sick and you're concerned about a urine infection and uh, there's no other source. So temporary diversion for a duplex system. All right, this is case number eight. 18-month-old um, who has uh, left inguinal swelling. 
pain and vomiting. If we can pull the poll up, we can see a normal right testes. Up here, we see a mass. And what is your concern? We can pull up our uh, results when they're calculated. So anybody with inguinal swelling, we worry about a hernia, okay? Hydrocils, swelling in the groin, patent process vaginalis, puts you at risk for a hernia. In this case, a hernia with an undescended testes puts the testes at risk for ischemia. So the correct answer is you're worried about testicular ischemia. In fact, in an undescended testes, we know there's an increased risk of uh, hernia getting incarcerated. We know in babies, they often have hernias. Michelle, can we pull up our uh, results for this one? So this is a baby who has testicular ischemia and it's definitely a pediatric urologic emergency. And it looks like everybody's pretty much on the same page there. Okay, here's an asymptomatic baby boy with abdominal scrotal swelling. And these pen marks here are not by accident. What's the diagnosis? And is this a pediatric urologic emergency? We can bring up our poll, please. Hi, Michelle. There we go. So we have four possibilities. And I think the history helps you a little bit here. This is definitely a varsity case and I think definitely controversial. So the answer is these are abdominal scrotal hydrocils. And um, when you see a hydrocil on your list, I'm always excited because it's one of my favorite operations. All of uh, UCSF residents know that. And um, because it can be done in just a, you know, 15 minutes or so and all, all kinds of beautiful anatomy. If you see an abdominal scrotal hydrocil on your list, I would cancel it because I think that's not typically the best approach here. These typically go away on their own. They're very different than classic hydrocils is a whole different pathophysiology and we've reviewed the literature extensively and it's about 50 50 split on whether these should actually have an operation it's my opinion if the baby's asymptomatic that there's a really good chance that these were resolved so they're very different in the sense that they're not a patent process vaginalis they're basically a huge hydrocil sac like you would uh, in an adult but that's pushed all the way up into the abdomen. Do we have our polling results? Great. Most of us got that and most of us agreed with me, so I guess I'm not too far out there. But very unusual, I would say it's less than 1% of patients with hydrocils, but something to keep in mind because you don't wanna be trying to dig out an abdominal scrotal hydrocil, first of all, it'll take hours, and I think there's risks in respect to uh, injury normal structures.
Okay, you're operating in the groin. This is the head of the patient. You can see that this is a teenager. Your preoperative indication was an enlarged, squishy scrotum, and this is what you found. Thank you. Okay, so what is the least likely thing you would see in a hernia? Okay. So in this case, I'm going to give you a hint. This is omentum. Okay, so that's not the answer. So you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven choices. I, I will admit this is a negative question. And let's bring up our polling answers. Okay. So we're a little bit across the board, but the leader is ovary. Uh, which is the correct answer. So ovaries, 99.9% .9 of the time are interabdominal. And this is somewhat of an important point. Patients who have a disorder of sex development and you palpate a gonad, the chance of that being an ovary is like 0.1%. So if you feel something that's either in the inguinal area or in the scrotum, you most likely have uh, Y tissue, SRY gene, and that helps focus your diagnosis. So when you are doing hernias, and this was a uh, teenager who kind of had a squishy uh, feeling scrotum, he was referred for a hydrocele, uh, transillumination, didn't show anything, but clearly his scrotum wasn't normal. And in that case, momentum kind of rises to the top, and that's indeed uh, what he had, which was popped back into the hernia sac. So what comes out? of hernias, bowel, omentum, appendix, uh, testes, undescended testes, VP shunts. I think bladders probably uh, would be just as rare as ovary, but ovary a little rare. And of course, peritoneal dialysis catheter, the VP shunt and peritoneal dialysis catheter, you, you should be able to get from history, but those are certainly risk factors for hernias. Is this a pediatric urologic emergency? Well, in the case of momentum and a patient who came to clinic who was well, no, but if obviously you're symptomatic, uh, then it would clearly be a pediatric urologic emergency. All right, case number 11. Three-year-old uh, with uh, testicular pain, we can have the pole. And I think everybody knows that this is torsion of the appendix testes. Uh, typically, this occurs in patients who are two to eight. Uh, we know this is a malarian remnant. Uh, pain is often slight. There can be a reactive hydrocele. <clears throat> the blue dot sign you can see in patients with lighter skin. And testicular imaging is indicated to confirm it's non-operative. Is this a pediatric urologic emergency? Well, yes, to make the diagnosis and rule out torsion, but no, in that the overwhelming majority of these patients uh, do not uh, typically need surgery. And the only ones that need surgery, I think, are if you can't make the diagnosis, which is unusual, or ones who may have persistent pain or an atypical presentation. If we can have the polling results, thank you. And everybody's on top of this baby. and. Everybody doesn't think it's an emergency, so we're right on there. Well, here's case 12, a 14-year-old with um, acute onset, 
uh, testes pain, nausea, and vomiting, high riding testes. Abdom <clears throat> the key point here is all patients with abdominal pain, you want to check their testes. I think that's the classic uh, mistake that happens in the ER. A kid comes in with abdominal pain and they forget to examine them. Uh, what's the diagnosis here? I think everybody knows that. And uh, we'll move along here uh, to case number 13. Um, the key is contralateral orchid apexy uh, to save the testes. This is all, I think, review. Nausea and vomiting occurs uh, in 95% of them, and we want to basically salvage these testes quickly. Um, we found that uh, fasciotomy has not been helpful for this, and um, the goal really is to get them to the OR within eight hours and contralateral orchid apexy. Okay, here's case number 13, kind of a varsity one. Unilateral and troidal masses in the neonate and older girls. We can get the pull up. And um, this is a uh, poll question here where you got to look at all of these and tell me um, what's not seen here. So you've got A, B, C, D, and E. I'm going to tell you that E is an older girl and all the other ones are neonates. Okay, if we, can, we can bring the poll up. All right, Ovira syndrome. Okay, that's the correct answer. So if we go through these, the first one, not a great photograph, is a prolapsing ureter sill. How would you tell? Well, it looks like one because it's thin-walled, but an ultrasound is going to give you your abnormal kidney. I would contrast that to an imperfect hymen, which is going to be a midline structure as opposed to an infected skein's gland, which is going to be off to the side uh, with a normal urethra and normal vagina. Um, I've only seen one rhabdomyosarcoma, but this doesn't look right. So obviously an ultrasound will help you to see the big mass. And urethral prolapse is going to be typically in a seven to 10 year old. Not an emergency. The other ones I think are semi-urgent. Um, and um, why, did, why did I put a virus syndrome here? Well, virus syndrome is just something I think is super interesting, not um, a uh, vaginal mass, but a malarian abnormality. So we've had um, a lot of interesting patients uh, who they seem to show up about every six months or so with this obstructed hemivagina impsilateral renal agenesis. And they are semi-emergent in that the classic presentation is cyclic abdominal pain after puberty. If somebody tells me that that's the chief complaint, my diagnosis would be uh, an imperfect hymen that's presenting later. So uh, consistent with the cyclic abdominal pain, but in these patients, um, when you examine them, you don't see an imperfect hymen, and ultrasound shows a solitary kidney, typical, typically with compensatory hypertrophy, and then cross-sectional imaging will show um, a uh, uterus didalphus with basically an obstructed hemivagina. The atrophic left kidney, which, the atrophic kidney, which typically occurs, uh, is basically subtended by a ureter, which you can see in this retrograde study. So here's an intraoperative evaluation. In this case, there's a normal right vagina 
You can see this is contrast in the fallopian tube. The left vagina is blocked. There's a little fistula. Here's the cervix on the right. Here's the fistula to the left hemivagina. Here's a little numbing of kidney, which is typically at the bifurcation of the iliacs, which will make a few drops of urine. You can see the fibrosis here. And uh, Bruce Schlomer at Dallas, one of our former fellows, wrote a nice paper on this where we have the normal kidney, uterus didalphus, obstructed hemivagina. Treatment is to remove the non-functional as well as open up the septum. Okay, we've got a few more and then time for questions. Uh, case 14, I'll go over this one quickly. Healthy baby, prenatal hydronephrosis, fall of ultrasound at three months, basically showed what I thought was probably debris, but this kid was clinically well. So I simply got a urine analysis and started him on antibiotics. He grew E. coli, he never got sick, and um, was this emergent? I think it was semi-urgent, but this is kind of on our theme of when you see debris on an ultrasound, what do you do with it? In this case, we didn't put a percutaneous nephrostomy tube or anything like that. We just treated it, and I think we basically had a subclinical infection that we took care of. All right, here's case number 15. This is a trauma case. Uh, this is a stick. It's going into the wrong spot, and it's coming out the wrong spot. All right, so what's the diagnosis? And is this a pediatric urologic emergency? And the answer is, it is a pediatric urologic emergency, and this is suboptimal tree climbing. CT scan basically showed the stick uh, up superficial. You can see the scrotum and penis here. I was worried it was going basically through uh, the abdominal wall. I think we could have just pulled out in the ER. <laughs> and the answer was we could have pulled it out in the ER, but we didn't know that. So we got the CT, we made a big deal about it. You can see that there's a suture attached to it because I washed it out and kind of left a drain in here. Um, but this is suboptimal tree climbing and falling on a stick. And fortunately, he didn't have a colostomy, he didn't need a suprapubic tube, he didn't need a bowel resection, he just needed the, the stick removed. <laughs> All right, here's uh, a newborn with vaginal trauma. I want you to focus on the kidney, which you can see here, a little bit of hydronephrosis, but what else is going on? And I need the diagnosis, and is this a pediatric urologic emergency? And the answer here is that this is adrenal hemorrhage. Uh, everybody seems to be on top of that. This is basically bruising from uh, the traumatic birth. And when you see bruising from the tra traumatic birth, especially if the baby's not well in any other way, you know they can be at risk for adrenal hemorrhage because adrenal gland is at risk for bleeding because it's quite big at birth compared to later on in life. All right, case 17. All the UCSF residents will get this one. Um, intermittent blockage of the urinary stream. And here's a video. This is endoscopy of the urethra. And I would like a diagnosis. I'll play that again. And is this a pediatric urologic emergency? 
All right, if we can bring up our answers, I'll show you what we did with this. So this is a benign fibroepithelial polyp coming off the prostate. It can be a urologic emergency because I've seen a patient present with urinary retention. Typically, they basically present with kind of intermittent ball valving of the polyp that basically obstructs the urethra. So we had uh, some malarian remnant guesses. I don't think it's a malarian remnant, but it's clearly uh, a polyp. Um, you could potentially confuse it for a rhabdo, but they look very different. Remember, rhabdomyosarcoma is from the muscle and not the epithelium. Um, it's not a tapeworm, but reasonable guess. Is it an emergency? Only if there's urinary obstruction, and I've only seen that once in general. All these are rare. Uh, they can be dealt with on an elective basic basis, and I think the trick is making the proper diagnosis. All right, our last question is urinary retention after straddling a fence hard? And you can see that it's probably a urologic emergency because the patient's in the operating room. This is a posterior urethral disruption. And as long as there's not associated injuries, and this is a good segue because uh, Lindsay Hampson um, is gonna be really speaking on uh, this, uh, this problem um, in our next hour, so I'm gonna really leave it to the expert. But without any associated injuries, I think our guidelines allow us uh, a, what I would call judicious or quick attempt at primary um, reconstruction. In this case, it all looked good uh, until we had the lateral view. So I was pretty close on this view, but on this view, you can see we're super far away. So after um, 30 minutes and a phone call to Ben Breyer, he said, give it up, leave the suprapubic tube in and repair this at a later date. So this is a pediatric urologic emergency. If you can get primary realignment, the outcomes uh, are, are, are decent, but if not, wait your four to six months for reconstruction. So there's obviously many more pediatric urologic emergencies that weren't covered, such as renal vein thrombosis, uh, malignancies, AV fistulas, trauma, bleeding after surgery, et cetera. Um, good references uh, for these up-to-date um, urea core curriculum and Campbell's. I want to... I wanted to shout out to uh, the UCSF residents, um, as well as all you residents uh, who in uh, the COVID-19 era are doing an incredible job and we can't do it without you. And I know our patients uh, really appreciate um, all of your hard work and support. So Lindsay asked me to put this slide up. Uh, I think you guys know what to do with a survey. And um, I'll take any questions uh, in the last few minutes. Thanks for your attention. Great, thanks so much, Dr. Baskin. We're, we have a few questions that uh, I'll try to condense for you. There's a few questions about swaddle MRI was a hot topic. Is there a sort of age range um, that swaddle MRI is preferable and can you describe sort of the technique a little bit for some people who are unfamiliar? 
Great. So yeah, that's an excellent question. So um, I, I've always been kind of against doing tests if they don't make a change in um, your clinical outcome. On the other hand, I work at an academic institution. All of you guys are in residencies at academic places. So I think it's our job to kind of learn and to push the envelope. We do our radiology conferences, um, you know, twice a month at our, uh, both of our children's hospitals and get to work with outstanding people. And they said, hey, we should do an MRI. And I go, no, no, no MRIs. We don't want anesthesia. We don't want IVs. And, and they're looking at me like, we don't do that. So for babies who can basically, we call it swaddle, who, you know, you feed them and then they fall asleep for an hour or two. And the ideal age range is really from the newborn period till around three to six months. After that, it becomes a little tricky because they're in a magnet and um, you can be in there kind of watching them. But after that, they really hard for them to really be still. So the ideal range is a, basically a six week old who has an abnormal uh, uropathy. And I think the big indications like giant hydronephrosis, you're not sure what it is, um, like bilateral ureteroceles, like huge mega ureters, and you pop them in there and it comes out and you can basically get a huge amount of information. We've also found it useful for our cloacal anomalies uh, where, you know, do they have um, a blocked vagina? Do they have uterus didalphus? And um, you have to have really good people to read these. And it's not such an easy test for us to look at, but because first of all, there's two, they end up with so many different uh, image series. But we get them done, we look at them with them, and I found them to be super useful. So anybody who can get in the scanner um, and can sit still, and babies, I would say, between um, just after the newborn period till around three to six months is um, what our kind of limits has been. And our, your MRI radiologists have to be a little bit flexible in that um, if the baby's not asleep, they can't go on the scanner. So they kind of try to time it, and they've been fantastic at both of our sites. Great. Um, another question uh, along those lines of giant uh, UPJ and UPG obstruction, what's your sort of decision point for open pilostomy? Would you ever consider a, a nephrostomy tube uh, as other option for decompression? Right. So if that baby were super sick, um, you know, I wouldn't fault anybody for putting a nephrostomy tube in, but a nephrostomy tube means you got to deal with it. And to put a nephrostomy tube in a baby, I guess if they're in the ICU, you know, they're already intubated, they're asleep. But let's say they're not, you still have to put them to sleep. So by the time you put them to sleep and put a nephrostomy tube in, um, I think our experience with doing a pilostomy, it's not going to take that much longer. And the thing about the pilostomy, and uh, we had a little, you know, JB uh, patient recently where we ended up doing both sides. I know a lot of the team's familiar with that. The kid's home. I don't have to worry about the nephrostomy tube getting infected. I don't have to worry about them, you know, pulling it out. And now it's not an emergency. So I like pediatric uro urologic emergencies, but I like to take care of them so they're not emergencies. So when you put the nephrostomy tube in, you've solved an immediate problem, but then, you know, what's your next step? Have you set yourself up for success? So the pilostomy, now we're in charge of when we're going to do the reconstruction and the baby's going to thrive and do great. So I haven't been a huge advocate unless in, you know, unusual circumstances because that nephrostomy tube may have to be changed to a pilostomy or it may fall out or whatever. In an older patient, not unreasonable because then you could potentially go to surgery, but not in babies. Great. Um, 
another question about sort of imaging and that the squishy scrotum teenager patient, was there a role for any preoperative imaging uh, for that patient? Um, I think that an ultrasound would be reasonable. And so as opposed to seeing um, a hydrocele, you know, with the fluid, you would basically, you know, see the omentum and probably be able to sort it out. I'm a great believer in imaging. Um, you know, we've been real advocates that imaging is a complete waste of time in patients with non-palpable testes, but half of our patients, in spite of us putting this in the pediatric literature and the surgery literature, still get referred with an undescended testes and they have the ultrasound in hand and it's like, why do we keep doing this? And the answer is, we keep doing it. Um, in respect to you know uh, your specific question, it doesn't hurt to get the imaging, but if it's not gonna change management, and in this case, this kid was gonna get an operation either way, I think imaging is very helpful to rule out a tumor. You don't wanna be caught with your pants down, so to speak, you know, making an incision in the wrong spot. Um, but this was, to me, clearly, uh, going to be an ingual incision, and we were going to kind of get this sorted out. So I wouldn't fault people for it, but like to be judicious in, in, in decreasing the amount of unnecessary testing. Great. Uh, along the same lines of imaging questions, for a patient with undescended testicle and associated hernia, are you, still, are you able to use testicular ultrasound to rule out torsion, or can you rely on physical exam? I think that's a tough one, because the, the patient I saw had an incarcerated hernia, and I may not have been as clear as I wanted to be. The teaching point is patients with incarcerated hernia and unascended testes are at super high risk of losing the testes because the incarcerated hernia basically squishes uh, and causes ischemia to the um, spermatic cord. And so that's really a true emergency. A, you got to get the bowel back in, and B, that testes is uh, at risk for um, basically torsion slash ischemia. Uh, actually, mostly ischemia because of the uh, pressing of the uh, hernia contents on the torsion, on the uh, spermatic cord. Great. Um, a question regarding hydrocele's and hernias in patients with VP shunts. Is that enough of an indication for bilateral groin, groin exploration when you have uh, those additional issues? Yes. Yeah. Great call. So, patient comes in VP shunt, peritoneal dialysis catheter, and has a hydrocele on one side that's indication to fix both sides. You fix one side, the other side is gonna become the pop-off. So that's the only time um, I would fix the asymptomatic contralateral side. Good point. Uh, a question about why you think neonatal torsion is sort of labeled as painless torsion. Do we know, do we know that for sure? And then if, if we do, why is that the case? Yeah, that's a really good question because I think if you squeeze on any testicle, it's gonna hurt. That's not like a normal thing to do. So um, neonatal torsion, that could be like an hour discussion, but the classic neonatal torsion is, remember, a spectrum. The same patient who presents in the newborn period with a hard painless testes, if you were to follow that patient and see them at age you know, two or age three or age five, that's the same patient who comes into your office who has um, a unilateral descended testes with hypertrophy and the testes at torse is now either pea size or gone. Following me? That same patient, if you saw them a month earlier in utero and we were doing like continuous ultrasound on the mom, that's when we think that torsion event may have occurred. So it's a spectrum. There's gonna be the one patient in a thousand or the one patient in a hundred who 
actually you see the neonatal torsion event live. It occurs like right after birth. So if you get called to the intensive care unit and the nurse says, hey doc, this baby was born four hours ago. I examined the testes, they were fine. Now the testes is red and fixed. That's a neonatal torsion event occurring right in front of your eyes. That's the kid you need to bring to the OR right away. So what I mean by painless is that if you press on it, it doesn't typically hurt. In other words, you can examine it and the baby's not flinching and moving. Does it actually hurt when you examine? I don't know, I'm not the baby. We know fetuses have pain, we know babies have pain. We know that pain's an important kind of uh, uh, response for, from an evolutionary perspective. So if you have an acute event, meaning all of a sudden the testes has changed in the ICU, if the testes is fixed to the scrotal skin, if it's red, if you touch it and that baby flinches, most likely you're seeing the neonatal torsion event right when it's happening, that would be an indication to operate. I've never saved a neonatal testes, but clearly there's, there's reports in the literature that that can happen. So again, it's a clinical kind of judgment call. My guess is the overwhelming majority you're gonna see is a totally healthy baby who's just looks fine, robust, newborn, you examine the testes, it's as hard as a rock, and that happened a week ago or something like that, and you're just seeing the remnant of it. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Baskin. We're going to end now on time. There's a few more questions we'll send to this to Dr. Baskin, and we'll post the answers online. And thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.